Well, good evening and uh, welcome to the fifth episode of Deconstructing the Magic Money Tree. Um, and I'm going to say welcome back to the program, David Scott. Welcome, David. I, I'm delighted to be here, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me back again. Last time, uh, we ended by saying that if we're going to build, 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 how are we going to pay for it? And uh, this, of course, brings us to probably the trickiest uh, area, which is all about money and, and the role of money in an economy and where money comes from and the types of money that there are. And it's a very broad topic that we're certainly not going to succeed in covering in one episode. But where do you think we should start? Well, maybe if we have a wee chat about what government is saying about its debt before we get into borrowing and such, such matters, the government has a view that government debt is, is a good thing. Hamilton, when the, the foundation of the United States, was talking about the enormous benefit that would be derived from a large national debt. And uh, this, this provides a, a home for savings and uh, sustainable, reliable returns for savers and uh, huge amounts of resources for the nation. And it's, it's entirely a good thing. So debt is good. Now, this is counterintuitive because when people go through their normal lives, they understand that when you have debt, you have demands on you that won't go away. You have less flexibility and freedom of action, and you're giving up a little bit of your independence to whoever holds the debt. That's, that's, all, that's all true, David. But, but on the other hand, people take on debt, and therefore you could argue that governments take on debt because there is some positive outcome from doing so. I accept that, that there are clearly restrictions placed on you once you do that, but you know individuals take on debt because otherwise they couldn't afford to buy a house. Uh, equally, governments take on debt because otherwise they couldn't afford to build a bridge. So, uh, and and then the question is: Is the debt worth, or the, the the equation between the benefit and the clear restrictions that it places upon you? Does that does that calculation work out in the end? Well, just before we get to that, though, the, the, the issue I want to explore is how does the government finance these things? The bridge, for example, right? It's got three options. Option number one: it can tax people and spend the taxation money. Option number two. It can borrow money, and that's to be repaid by as yet unborn taxpayers. And option three is it can print the money. Uh, there is a there is a fourth option, of course, which which might end up being discussed at some point, which is to ask private corporations to uh, partner with them um, and fund it that way. Yes, but you still use that's not the private corporation doesn't get over the point of where does the money come from. You're still left with those three options. If the, if the private corporation is bringing in private finance capital with it, then that's borrowing from the free market or investment capital from the free market. So you've got taxation. Now, now the problem with taxation is people don't like taxation. It's arguably theft. It's certainly painful. And uh, the only reason that the government really gets away with as much as they do is because it's taken off um, your payroll taxes are taken off at source. So you never really see the money. Um, you just have a deduction on your pay slip. For most people, that's how it works. So taxation is somewhat of a problem politically. It's also a problem economically because the more money you take out of the economy in taxation, uh, the more you depress the economy. So ultimately, the issue is the power to tax is the power to destroy. And this is recognized because uh, the government is now seeing its social policy enacted via taxation. People are too fat. 
oh, this is bad for the NHS. So we're going to tax sugar. We're going to tax fast food. So it becomes a behavioural tool rather than... Yeah, yes. But, but, the, but the implication there, the assumption there, is that if we tax it enough, we will destroy consumption. Alcohol is bad because we have drunkenness and disorder. So we're going to put up the price of alcohol. Cigarettes are bad because of lung cancer. So we're going to put up the price of cigarettes to drive down the use. So there's a recognition on the part of the government that taxation does destroy. So one option they have is taxation. But the recognition is, at least on some level, is this is destructive because we're, we're, we're absorbing some part of the economy. We're cutting it off and we're, then we're using it for other purposes, but we first destroyed something. So there's, a, there's a, I suppose, an honesty about that. Now, it's a little bit trickier when it comes to debt, because you then get a whole lot of things. People are saying things like, okay, we've got this huge government debt. Is that a problem? Now, you'll, you'll hear people saying, well, uh, no, because we only owe it to ourselves. We're borrowing now, and we're going to pay it back in the future. But when you get to the future, it's all okay because your grandchildren will have to pay the debt, but your grandchildren will also hold the debt. So it's a wash, we're just paying it to ourselves. Now, this is put forward by serious economists, well, semi-serious economists like Paul Krugman, as being an argument. There's a couple of things very, very wrong with it. One was actually nailed by the Scottish philosopher, the Enlightenment philosopher, David Hume. And he said, well, the problem is when you get to that future point and you're paying it back, it's not evenly distributed. The debt tends to be held by the non-productive parts of of the economy, the retired, the elderly, and it's paid by the productive parts of the economy, the young people who are starting businesses and and providing the dynamism to your economy. So it's it's not a wash. What you're actually doing is you're you're saddling your future economy, your future nation with um, a burden on the productive parts of that to pay the debt. Uh, okay, but uh, but if we if we say that that one option it, for paying for build 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 is to increase the government debt, uh, and how does the government go about doing that? It issues at this point it issues gilt edge edge bonds, um, and those are sold to whom to, to pension funds. Now those are supposed to be a fixed income product. They may not necessarily these days all be sold to pension funds, but if, but they have been in the past. And so so in that case, you're funding people's private pension funds through the government debt. That that can't be a bad thing. Well, this is the argument. This is the this is the Hamiltonian argument that in, in favour of debt. Of course, you can come back with a free market alternative. So if we're building market, if we're building bridges and roads and railways on the free market, the pension funds would invest in that. You know, they just wouldn't have the government involved with all of the political incentives that come with it. If pensions are having to invest in in that, there's a risk attached to that, whereas there's no perceived risk attached to government debt. That not that the point? Well, that's the claim. Right? <laughs> right. Now, now I, I would point out that governments do go bankrupt, and, and it happens quite a lot. I mean, Germany's gone bankrupt three times in the last 100 years. Greece, I think, has managed more than that. You could claim that America went bankrupt when it came off the gold standard. Okay, but a, a government going bankrupt doesn't remove the uh, responsibility to pay back what's on the piece of paper, which is the guild edge bond, right? So, so that's only a temporary hitch. Well, no, I, this can be a permanent hitch. At the very least, I mean, we're talking about bondholders across Europe having to take a cram down. 
uh, having to take you know 50, 50 cents on the dollar, 50 pence on the pound. Yeah. So you, you can quite easily lose a, a large amount of your money in, in uh, government bonds. The British bonds, the gilts, have been viewed as being very reliable. It's true. Just, just before we get on to that, though, just to finish off the other problem with the, the government debt going forward, at some point, so you've got some part of your population paying off another part of your population, so it tends to be the productive paying off the non-productive. So that's a, a limit on, on the productivity. But at some point, the debt needs to be retired. And when that point hits, everyone has to be poorer to pay off the debt. So there is an intertemporal change in resources here where it is not an exaggeration to say that we are forcing generations yet unborn to pay for things that we are getting the benefit from now. And there's certainly a a moral question about whether that's something we should be doing to our children and grandchildren. Uh, but if we're talking about uh, if we're talking about large scale infrastructure projects, these aren't things that only last for twenty five years. These are things that our children are going to get the benefit from, whether they want them or not. Yes, yes, they didn't they did they didn't sign up for this. They're just going to have to. You've got the bridge. You have to pay for it now. Thank you very much. Welcome to the world. Yeah. I mean, I'm taking I'm taking your point to a certain degree, but I need to push back a little bit because our generation is benefiting from the infrastructure that our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents built. We, as a nation, we have the benefit of the capital accumulation that's gone, that's gone on for centuries. Yes, but government debt is something different because it's not all infrastructure, right? It's, all, it's, it's essentially politically motivated. It's not motivated from the same, the same reason that a railway company would decide to build a railway, which is, I think, it's, it's, a, it's a going concern. It's motivated for things like, well, fighting wars, engaging in huge welfare programs, changing society in ways that our wise overlords seem to want. So there's a lot of things that are happening which are not economic. And if you say, well, there's going to be some capital accumulation, well, yes, but how efficient is this? How does it compare to the debt? You've got taxation, which is obvious and painful and clearly harmful. You've got the debt version, which is much more popular with government, but puts off the pain to probably the next generation. But there is still pain. There's still a depression of the economy and there's still uh, the, the money still has to be paid back. Those are two options. And the third one is inflation, which is silent theft, where money is printed. And essentially what happens is the money takes value from the existing money in circulation. Inflation takes place, everything's worth a little bit less, but the government get the benefit of being able to spend this money into the system. And anything that's inflationary tends to benefit the people who get the money first and tends to disadvantage the people who are on fixed incomes or pensioners or who get the money later. So these are the three ways that government have to go about it. Those are the, there are no other options. There are problems whichever route you go. Now, the taxation situation is that, that we're at peak tax. Essentially, most of the governments in most of the Western parts of the world have taxed the population to the greatest extent that that population will bear. And it varies. I mean, if you're Greeks and you don't like paying tax, it's a smaller percentage than if you're British. There's a, each country has its own kind of, kind of peak level of tax. But there comes a point where if you drive up tax rates, the take goes down. Scottish government found this out just recently, and very embarrassingly. They said, well, the, the rich, we're going to ask, they always, it's always ask, you know how it's, they're always asking people. We're going to ask the rich to pay just a little bit more to help those in need. 
and they, they then jacked up the, the, the uh, taxation rate. For anyone doing rec- relatively well in Scotland and hoovered up less money than they had been getting at the lower rate. What was the mechanism for that? The mechanism for the, for the take falling. Yes. It, it disincentivizes earnings and it incentivizes doing other things with money because as, as you get to people with a, with a wee bit more money, there's a bit more flexibility. They've got some choices they can make as to when they pay themselves and how they pay themselves and what they do with their cash. They weren't, you're realizing it as income and uh, the, the, the income tax take fell. By, by quite a substantial margin. So you get to a point, I think it's called the Laffer curve, isn't it? It's a sort of peak tax and then, it's, then it declines. So if you, if, if you tax at 0%, you get zero pounds. If you tax at 100%, you get zero pounds because who would declare any income at that level? And it's somewhere in between there's a, there's a peak. Mostly, I think, the, the, the Western countries have reached that sort of peak level of tax. And there's not much more to be get gained You've got taxation revenue as taxation revenue. Uh, the government is gaining as much as they possibly. But you're, you're talking about direct taxation, of course, whereas uh, the vast majority of the taxation that we're experiencing is, is indirect through sales tax and uh, particularly on fuel. Uh, and uh, but, in, but in fact, VAT is huge, 20% on most yeah. things. And, and more and more items being added to the VAT requirement over the last couple of years so that of course is an option as well is that they they increase the level of sales tax or or they increase the number of indirect taxes uh, as you mentioned already sugar tax of course that is a, a relatively new one but but even even with all of this if you look at the percentage tax take against the economy it doesn't vary much you know, they're not able to drive it up there's not any huge extra taxation income going to come in because you know, you put up VAT, well, people will adjust, people will buy less, people will spend less. The, you know, the percentage take will go down and the higher rate maybe won't even compensate. So if, if what you're saying is that, that uh, uh, tax reaches a peak and it doesn't really exceed that peak, then there's a limit on the amount of borrowing that can be funded through that particular mechanism. Therefore, if you're borrowing more than that, you're having to look at the other mechanisms for, for paying it back? Well, well, firstly, there's a limit on how much tax you can get for direct expenditure. So if you're going to build some bridges, you're going to build some roads, you're going to build some railways, you could just run that out of capital investment from the taxation you bring in that year. Okay, But there's a limit. And if we're going to have a, a government-led recovery out of the government-led crisis, and we're going, to, we're going to build our way out of the crisis, and that's what Boris is saying, we're going to build, 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 then it can't come from taxation revenue because taxation, taxation revenue, even on a good year, and this is not a good year, I'm sure you've noticed, uh, even on a good year is tapped out. And on a year like now where taxes, taxation revenue will be going down the toilet, I mean, we're talking about essentially three months where taxation enforcement was suspended in this country. Um, corporation tax was suspended. Income tax was suspended. Um, we've got cuts to certain forms of VAT to try and, uh, try and start sectors up again that have been closed down by government regulation. So taxation is very low. And of course, expenditure on social programs is stratospherically high. So we're not going to, against that background, fund any sort of building out of taxation. So we can put a line through that as to how we're going to build, build, build. Taxation's one option, but no, 
that's not available to Her Majesty's government just now. So that leaves us with two. Option one, borrowing. Now, you said an interesting thing. Who buys the debt? You asked an interesting question. Who buys the debt? Now, of course, when I said that, I'm talking about in the past. What's happening at the moment, of course, is that the Bank of England is buying the debt. Um, so effectively, that's the mechanism by which the money printing is happening. So the government is issuing the gilt edge bonds. It's putting them out in the market and the Bank of England is buying them up, printing money as it goes in order to pay for them. What happens to that money at that point? It goes into the government's coffers, never to be seen again. Ah, not quite. But you're, but you're absolutely right about the Bank of England. The Bank of England is actually front-running the government because if you look at the Bank of England purchases of gilts, right, they're, they're a month ahead of the government. They're buying in June what the government wants to borrow in July. So that's why borrowing has gone through the roof and interest rates, which would, should normally go up, right, supply and demand. There's more demand, same supply, the, the interest rate should spike upwards. Interest rates have actually fallen. The government's getting money for essentially nothing. That's because the Bank of England are creating money out of thin air as a central bank, lender of last resort, based on what? Based on nothing, right? Based on it's, it's we're the Bank of England, we can do that. And they are buying up all this government debt, which is putting money into the commercial banks, into the pension funds, and then the pension funds and commercial banks take that and buy more government debt. And they make a little, they're making a little a little cut on the deal, so they're happy, and um, the government's getting their debt very, very cheaply, so they're happy. Now, of course, the Bank of England is going to argue that this isn't inflation because that money is going to be paid back and then then withdrawn from the economy again. <laughs> yes, I'm sure they would. I'm sure. Yeah, we're going to we're going to pay down the national debt. Yeah, um, that's not going to happen. You you said that that money disappears and is never to be seen again, but this is obviously not not exactly what happens. What does happen to the money? Well, the government gets its money, gets its trillion or whatever it's going to spend on infrastructure, and it starts to spend it. So it will buy things like uh, the services of building contractors and architects and engineers, concrete and steel, um, roadstone and bitmac, and whatever whatever you're wanting to build your infrastructure from. So that money is then passed on down to those companies who bank a certain amount of profit and they, they pay the employees and the suppliers who bank the profit. So the money ends up after a bit in the commercial banking system. That then raises a question, what do commercial banks do under those circumstances? Which is like all of these questions now tricky because the circumstances we're faced are not exactly like circumstances we've ever faced. But essentially, this gets us to the point of if you're in a world of fractional reserve banking, and we are, then the commercial banks take whatever additional money the government has put into the system and they multiply it. And if your fractional reserve banking is about 10%, which is roughly the sort of figure we're talking about, then the commercial banks can take whatever government printed money, Bank of England, central bank printed money, goes into the system and multiply it by 10 in terms of the amount of credit they can create. So you have the potential, at least, for a huge credit expansion. And a huge credit expansion will cause a huge boom, and that will result in a huge bust. That isn't a prospect at the moment because we're in a depression, and therefore 
there is no desire for that credit and banks risk departments aren't going to be pushing that credit out well this thing this this let's look at this as a stage at a time right so normally in normal times banks run fully loaned up they'll they'll essentially because they make money when they make loans they will loan out the maximum they're allowed to in normal times that's where banks sit now, ever since the 2008 banking crisis, we've not been in normal times. So we've had a situation where actually some of the banks weren't even running fractional reserves. I mean, there's so many reserves that it, it was virtually 100% reserve banking for some of them. They had huge amounts of money held partly against the risk of bad debt, partly because they saw lending it as just too risky partly because there wasn't the demand from a, a population that was rightly thinking, I don't actually know if these interest rates really are a sign I should be borrowing up to the up to the eyeballs after all. And people were starting to make sensible decisions and pay down the debt. But remember, the government's trying to do the opposite. The government's trying to encourage debt. The government's saying, go out and spend, go out and buy, go out and have a meal. Boris is even going to subsidise you going out and having a meal. Get the economy going again. Spend, spend, spend. So they're, they're trying to run that narrative as well. So you've then got the very strange situation that the banks would normally want to lend this money out, but are temporarily restrained by assorted other fears and assorted other mechanisms from doing so because they're able to deposit it back with the central bank and they're getting some interest rate from that and the view is very safe and, and there's no, you really don't see any risk there. Um, and... So it's not going out into the general population. It is going into certain investment capital. It's holding up stocks and shares. It's holding up the housing market. The housing market's currently overheating. I, I mean, this is, this, is, this is insane, but it's true. The, the, the house three doors down from me was on the market two days. It's a third of a million quid sold in two days. Everyone I'm speaking to, certainly in Scotland. It's the same here. Houses are going in days. People, the, uh, the other one I was, I was hearing about, uh, it, was sold in a, it was sold in a day. It took the estate agent four days to find out the house had gone because, because someone essentially found out where the house was before the sign went up, doorstepped the owner, um, got, a, got a guided tour, said, I'll buy it, put an, put, put an offer in the same day and bought it from underneath the estate agent. Who's doing this? Well, this I want to know. And are they saying? So this is a bizarre situation. So we've got the biggest recession in history. GDP, well, American GDP is down a third. Ours must be something broadly similar. But it's harder to get figures from Britain. So do you think this is the banks uh, simply handing out credit like Swedes? It has to be. There's no other reason. There's no other excuse for this. Why does everyone in the middle of a huge economic downturn and claimed global pandemic, why does everyone think, I know what I want to do this week. I want to buy a house. I want to get levered up. I want to get some nice debt and I want to go out there and I want to buy a house. And I'm so desperate to do it. I'm going to do it in 24 hours and I'm going to pay over the odds to do it. This makes no rational sense. It is inflation. There's no two ways about it. That's inflation. It's just not inflation of all sectors. It's inflation of financial assets. So that's where it's going. Now, at some point, it could become more general inflation because that's what fractional reserve banking can do. You put, you put a trillion 
pounds into the system at one-tenth fractional reserves, the commercial banks can create another $9 trillion on top of that. That's what fractional reserve banking is. It can create a huge credit inflation, huge credit bubble. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say, by the way, that, that, that this, this 10 to 1 ratio that you're talking about is more of a US thing than a UK thing. I'm not aware that there's any particular standard for what the, what the reserve is. And if, you know, just to give people an idea, if we look at the proportion of, of bank deposit money to real, I use the word real in very strongly in inverted commas, uh, currency, it's only 3% at the moment. Yeah, yeah 20, 30, 20, 30 to 1 is not unusual in, in British and European banks. Yes. And, and, and Deutsche Bank's the worst, but there's huge problems all around the, the, the banking industry all across Europe. And of course, it doesn't take many of the loans to go bad before they're complete asset base is wiped out. Oh, we don't need to worry about that. All those loans have been packaged up and securitized and sold in the markets. I mean, that's never gone wrong before, has it? Well, quite. I, I mean, I was amazed to find out that America is now in the grip of a bit of a crisis with commercial mortgage um, securitized bonds. Right? You know, so there was nobody learned anything from the last crisis. Let's do it with commercial real estate this time. Let's do it with offices and shops in the middle of a huge crisis that means no one's going to the office or the shops. Oh, we've got a problem. You know, this is another one of, of many huge bumps in the road that are just coming along thick and fast. But the money's going into the system. It's coming out in, in strange and unpredictable ways. So we've got record high stock prices. We've got, we've got record high housing prices, which makes no sense at all. This is not based on anything. Ultimately, it's based on money being created out of thin air by the Bank of England and put into the commercial banking system. My position, my approach to this is it doesn't make any sense and it can't be sustainable and things that can't be sustainable won't be sustained. There will be a payment for this. There will be a crash for this. And we're now in a position where it's not only over-exuberance on the part of commercial banks, it's entirely backed by the central bank. It's entirely backed by the government. It's entirely backed by international central banking organizations. And it's entirely backed by governments across the world. And this has never happened before. We've never seen anything like this before. So what I'm wondering is, well, if this, this amount of trying to make the thing boom by money printing, what does the bust look like? Well, you have proposed to me that perhaps there's something very unusual about to happen uh, and certain reserve currencies and perhaps some almost reserve currencies would be abandoned. And when we when we look at what the global elites are talking about at the moment, I'm referring to the World Economic Forum here, uh, using language like the Great Reset, having that language appear in policy documents right down to local council level. There's clearly something in the works. Yes, and this is the concern, because why would a government, the position of a government, said and say, well, we're not going to have austerity this time. No, this time we're going to have spending. We're going to have build, build, build. What do they know? It seems to me that the, the likely outcome is to destroy the money, is to destroy the currency system. And what does the Great Reset mean if not a complete replacement. Now, monetary systems don't tend to last all that long anyway. And certainly if you've got fractional reserves, they're quite inherently unstable. Bretton Woods lasted from 44 to 71 when we came off the gold standard. We then were on the got the dollar and oil standard from 71 till, well, for what, about now? Are we still on that? 
but but Brentonwoods sure didn't fail as such. It didn't fail in the way that, you, that we're talking about this monetary system failing. Brentonwoods failed because there was a choice, a, a political decision made to come off the gold standard. Uh, because, of course, once they did that, they could open the taps on speculative behavior. Well, the reason they came off the gold standard is they were running out of gold. And the reason they were running out of gold is they'd spent the money, they'd inflated the currency, and they were then reaping what they'd sown. And the reason they'd, they'd inflated the currency is, one, to, for political reasons, the big society. Um, and, and the other reason was a, a bit of temporary unpleasantness we call the Vietnam War. Yes. So I mean, that's, that's what they'd done. They'd spent the money. They'd spent their way out of number one country on earth status. And the gold was leaving the vaults at a rate of knots that would leave them manifestly bust. So they just changed the rules. And you can do that if you get the largest blue water navy in the world. They changed the rules. But that was the end of Bretton Woods. Right? So we're on to something else. And that something else has kind of run its course as well. So we're, we're, we're due something new. And I'm looking at all of the policies followed by all of the major nations, and you're thinking, well, this, this cannot last. This is reckless in the extreme. Everything is now leveraged up to the hilt. Where does it go? Well, it, must, it must end up in, 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 the, in the collapse of currencies. And remember, you've only got reserve currencies. You've got the dollar, you've got the euro, you've got the yen, and that's about it. There's tier two, you've got the pound, the Swiss franc, and maybe the, the, the yuan, maybe. And the rest of it's wallpaper. So you've got at, at most six currencies in the world. Yeah, it's anacolypta. It's, it's, it doesn't mean anything. So if the top three go, it's, it's complete, you know, a completely catastrophic situation. Now, what will happen in a catastrophic situation is you'll have people like Gordon Brown talking about saving the world, and they'll sit down and there'll be a deal done. All of a sudden, there'll be a new currency and all the rest of it. And it'll take years to figure out how much your pocket's been picked. And your liberty is gone. Because like the homeowner who gets into debt, when you've got debt, you lose, you lose liberty. You, you, you give up a bit of your freedom. And uh, we're, we're yet to see the full impacts of that. Um, okay. Uh, look, we're out of time. Well, let, 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 me, let, me, let me finish off with just saying what we should maybe look at next, next week. We've talked about debt and some of the downsides of it. And we've talked about the instability that we're seeing all across the system. Maybe what we should talk about next week is we we look more about how banking works as an issue because we've talked about fractional reserves, but let's delve into what that means in practice and the strange arcane nature of the whole the whole system. Uh, does that include, because I'm very keen to, to discuss with you, uh, the types of money that, that exist? Because most people think that, uh, you know, when they stick their hands in their pockets and pull out some money, that that's the only type of money that exists. Or even worse, people think that when they stick the card in the machine, or increasingly these days, wave it in the general direction of the machine, that they're spending the same thing as, as exists in their pockets if they still carry cash at all. Yes. Yeah, well, so you've got M, M0, M1, M2, and M3, but we don't talk about that anymore because the government no longer publishes the data. Um, so yes, we'll look at all of that and we might get into a little bit about what the central banking is doing to this system. Okay, let's do that. Well, look, once again, thank you very much for joining me, David. Uh, and uh, we will be back next week. Thank you very much, Mike.